Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll go base jumping with a young girl on the brink of womanhood. You'll barely survive a canoe trip on the Locksaw River. You'll hear about a grandmother becoming a single mother and, because of the kindness of a stranger, find your way in an unfamiliar city. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on June 13th, 2018 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Risk. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Before we get to the stories, I want to let you know that the next live Tell Us Something event is October 2nd in Missoula, Montana. The theme is, It's Complicated. Follow Tell Us Something on social media to find out when tickets go on sale. We are taking story pitches for It's Complicated right now. To pitch your story, call 406-203-4683. Let's get to the stories. Delaney Washerall is 17 years old and on the precipice of womanhood as she contemplates jumping off a cliff in Utah with some badass women. She calls her story Testing Gravity. It's early morning but it's already sweltering outside. I've just watched my new friend jump off a cliff. I am supposed to be next. I've had to go to the bathroom about six times in the last half hour. (laughs) Pee, that is. (laughs) I am so nervous. My stomach is in my ankles. We have spent the last 48 hours naturally rigging, meaning we held large ropes, tied them around even larger boulders, and we strung it across a canyon. It took a long time, and I was with a lot of people that really, really love jumping off things. Primarily base jumpers, uh, highliners, and the like. I'm here in Moab primarily because of my Aunt Sonia. She's a highliner by trade, meaning that she strings webbing across canyons and then walks across it, hooked to an anchor, but still very scary and very cool. (laughs) And I have been with her for about the past week with these other wild outdoor enthusiasts who, like I said, really love to jump off things. And I have been offered the second jump, which is pretty perfect if you think about it, because you don't have to be first, which is scary for obvious reasons. (laughs) But you don't have too much time to think about it and chicken out. But I think I still might chicken out. (laughs) There's something about being a human where you're wired to not jump off things that make it really hard to actually do so. So it's a bit of a trick. But I think I'm gonna do it. I've spent the last couple days getting to know this wild group of people who do this professionally. And so not only do I wanna do it, because it looks like a lot of fun, I also feel like I'm the one that people think won't jump, so I really want to. (laughs) And as an added bonus, as I said, it's the eve of my 18th birthday. In my mind, this is huge. I'm leaping into adulthood and leaving childhood behind, 
And that is kind of unusually scary. <laughs> but so is this. And you very rarely get the chance to do something as physically dramatic as it feels internally. But here I am. So I might as well give it a go. So as we're setting up the rigging, I'm with these just badass people. And they keep giving me advice. Oh, you should just do it. You're going to regret it if you don't. But don't, no pressure. You don't, don't do it if you don't want. <laughs> but if you do, don't shit your pants. <laughs> I'm told that a lot, actually. Have fun out there, kid. Don't shit your pants. So I'm going to the bathroom for about the seventh time. That's peeing. And I'm shaking. I'm trying not to seem too nervous, but I'm extremely nervous. Kind of rightfully so. The drop that I would be doing is about 250 feet and another about 100 feet to the ground. You jump, you swing out on the rope, and you fall that 250 feet, which is a really, really long ways. I don't know if I have to say that. It looks really far, and it feels really far. <laughs> but uh, I just I know I have to do it. And so they, they tell me I've got about five minutes. They're setting up the, the rigging. They're pulling back up the rope. Someone has jumped before me. She sounded like she had a lot of fun. So they're setting it up. My Aunt Sonia is going through all the rules with me. You have to jump off there, not there. That way you could hit another cliff. That would be very bad. Jump there and run. Make sure you jump. That's very important. Also, hands can't touch the rope. That would also hurt you very bad. Whew, OK. So she continues walking me through the rules. She tells me how I'm supposed to rappel down once I've, I've hit the bottom, or hit the bottom of the rope, that is. <laughs> and I was like, OK, OK. And then the very last thing, OK, kid, just have fun. Don't shit your pants. <laughs> OK, yeah. Important advice. Oh, so I take a really deep breath. And I try and look as relaxed as possible, even though every fiber of my being is telling me, do not jump off this cliff. <laughs> but I really want to, so I do. <sighs> and I, I ask, are you sure? Is this good? And Sonia tells me it's safe. And so I tell my feet to start moving. And they do. And they move, and they get to the edge of the cliff, and they jump. And there's air everywhere. <laughs> My stomach's up top. There's yells of approval from the, from the cliffs above. There's also really loud yelling that I realize is coming from myself. <laughs> I'm having the time of my life. This is incredible. I'm having so much fun. And oh, it feels like forever. I'm just looking down at the red rock beneath me, and it's swooping and swooping. And there, I just feel euphoric, and I'm 
feel so happy and so accomplished for actually making myself jump. But eventually, the static ropes or dynamic ropes from above catch me. They've got a little give in them, luckily, so. It's surprising, but it doesn't hurt. I jolt a little, I've swung across the canyon, and I start swinging and swinging, and I can see the tiny people who were just my size a minute ago from the canyon, just yelling and giving me thumbs up. And I see another person below me, also pretty excited. But I, eventually I, I start to stop swinging. And I think, wow, this is, I'm just euphoric. I feel so happy. But then I remember that I'm supposed to remember how to get down. <laughs> I don't. So even though I did this really badass thing, I think, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to ask, which is pretty uncool, but it's a little bit risky. I can't just start tugging on these things because the ground is 100, at least feet behind, uh, below me. So Whew, I like suck in my pride a little bit and I holler below me because that's less intimidating. I say, uh, how do I get down? <laughs> and she's nice enough to tell me. And so I start to rappel down, and I just feel so contented and so alive. I'm, I'm grinning ear to ear, I'm sure, and I just feel so ready and kind of clumsily, but surely my feet hit the ground. Thank you. Thanks, Delaney. Delaney Washerall is an avid volunteer of many Missoula nonprofits, a backpacking enthusiast, an artist, and a self-identified cool girl. Our next story comes to us from John Schneeberger. A merit badge in canoeing doesn't help John Schneeberger on the Loxaw River as he ends up on the wrong side of the river with a friend and his four-year-old son. John calls his story, Down the Loxaw in a Canoe. In 1980, I was on a thinning crew up Highway 12 with my friend Joe. Now, I uh, enjoyed cutting down trees. The Forest Service had taught me how to cut down trees, and I thought I was pretty good at it. Also on the thinning crew was uh, Joe's friend, Jerry, and Jerry owned a beautiful handmade cedar canoe. Now, if you continue up Highway 12, you'll go over Lolo Pass and down into Idaho, and you'll come to the Loxaw River. And Highway 12 follows the Loxaw River for about 80 miles, and it's some rough country. As a matter of fact, it almost ended the Lewis and Clark expedition. They got waylaid by the extreme terrain. They had to eat some of their horses. No horses get eaten in this story. <laughs> the Loxaw is now well known as a famous destination whitewater rafting area. It's also very popular, woo, yeah. It's also very popular for its hot springs, including Jerry Johnson Hot Springs. And so in late June, early July, on a high water year, Joe suggests we go car camping over on the Loxaw. 
And when Joe's friend Jerry heard that Joe wanted to take his cedar canoe, he thought that was a bad idea. <laughs> he said, that's a rough river. It can be done. I've seen it done. It's a fast, maneuverable canoe. You can dodge through those rapids. But you've got to be a good canoeist. Are you a good canoeist? I said, am I a good canoeist? I have a merit badge in canoeing. <laughs> I had gotten a merit badge when I was 12 on a lake in Missouri. <laughs> I knew my J-stroke and my draw, and I knew how to rudder. Oh, I was ready for all of this, you know? I'd been down the Merrimack, class one rapids. I'd been down the, the uh, current river, I knew that when you go hit the rapids, class one rapids, you go straight down the V, right in the middle of the, right down the middle of the river, ha ha, yeah. And so uh, off we went to the Locksaw, and it was me and Joe and Joe's four-year-old son. <laughs> now you're thinking, Canoe, Locksaw, crazy. Now you're thinking, Canoe, uh, Locksaw, four-year-old son, batshit crazy. But this is 1980. And so there were a lot less warning labels on Montana back then. So we set in just below Jerry Johnson Hot Springs, about a mile down. And uh, we surveyed the, to look for a flat spot. We were going to just take a short excursion. We were clueless, but not completely clueless. We were wearing uh, T-shirts and shorts, and we had three life jackets. We put one on Bob, and we threw the other two in. Joe and I didn't wear them because this was 1980, and we were men. <laughs> and so we started down the river, and holy guacamole, Chester, this was not the current river. And it was thrilling. It was probably the most thrilling three minutes of my life. It was absolutely <laughs> very exciting. And I immediately was trying to paddle over to the uh, highway side of the river uh, when the next uh, rapids came up. And I didn't want to get the canoe sideways in those rapids. So I went down the, down the V. And the bow of the canoe went up, and then down, and then up, and then the bow of the canoe dived into the water, and the canoe slips out from under us. Joe reaches around and grabs little Bob. I grab both of them. We paddle like crazy to the nearest shore. And there we are, looking across the Locksaw River at the highway. <laughs> Not, not swimming across that. Joe wasn't a strong swimmer. I had a merit badge in swimming. So the only thing to do is walk up the river. But just like Lewis and Clark, we got waylaid. There's no shore. There's big boulders. We're having to bring Bob along with us. And obviously, and then, don't forget Bob. And so, it's about dark. Now, we started at noon, and it's getting dark, right? And we know we're at, we're at Jerry Johnson Hot Springs, and all, we knew that we had to cross Warm Springs Creek. And we thought we'd just wade across it. And when we got there, it's 60 feet wide and all white. And that's between us and the bridge. And by this time, I'm a little harried and I'm just you know, running on adrenaline, and I was going to prove that we could wade across that river. 
And so luckily Jerry gave me his car keys and I proceeded to wade across the river and it was a huge current and by the time it got to my knees, it just swept me down the river. And I was tumbling in the river and it was white and then I can remember distinctly seeing the sky and then white and then the sky and people ask whether I had that, uh, you know, you're gonna die experience but it was 38 years ago, I was 23 years old. Just to say I was highly motivated to get out of that creek. Made it across the creek, looked across at Joe and Bob. Obviously, plan one did not work, waiting. So uh, I was in search of a chainsaw at that point. My mission was to get a chainsaw. I had a really good idea, a good 23-year-old idea. <laughs> and I drove, I, somebody, somebody uh, was going up to Jerry Johnson, I got in the car, I went up to Powell Ranger Station. And I happened to find, by the grace of God, a couple of firefighters there who were fairly experienced, also 20-somethings though. I told them the story. And he said, what do you think we ought to do? I said, we need to drop a tree across Warm Springs Creek. And so off we went with all of our gear. They followed me down there. <laughs> True story. True story. I was fully intending to cut down the tree myself, the biggest tree I'd ever cut down. But luckily, when I reached for the chainsaw, the Sawyer said, no, we got this. Just move your friends upstream. And we proceeded to find a three foot in diameter, dug fur, chest height diameter, and he cut that down. And it was beautiful, did a beautiful job of that. And the Warm Springs Creek flushed that tree <laughs> down the river. 10 tons of tree disappeared. You, you, can, you now see what I just crossed earlier in the evening. So we had a huddle. Bunch of 20-somethings came up with another 20-something idea. A bigger tree. We took a four-foot diameter dug fir that was probably big when Lewis and Clark were eating their horses in the 18th century. And he did a marvelous job of cutting this down. And the, you know, the, it held, it held on both sides, the trunk was out of the water, and the true hero of the story, the Forest Service guy went across to this Pulaski, chopping off the limbs, and he had his rescue webbing, and secured the folks over on the other side, brought them across, safety, relief, lots of hugs all around, uh, as relieved as I'm gonna be after this terrifying experience. <laughs> and we got back in the car, it was midnight. And Joe, he was, he, was, he was very thankful, but he said, you know, couldn't you just taken a, uh, a sleeping bag and stuck some matches in it and flung it across the creek? And I said, well, that's speculative. Instead of dropping trees across the creek, we could have thrown sleeping bags in the creek all night, but, and I doubt that the creek would have been impressed either way. <laughs> but what we were sad about was the fact that we sacrifice two huge trees to our dumb asses. <laughs> and what's also true is that now, if you go up Warm Springs Creek, the creek that we had trouble crossing there, you go up two miles, you come to Jerry Johnson's Hot Springs. If you go up another two miles back then and still today, you will find a very well-built bridge. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, John. John Schneeberger lives in the Bitterroot Valley with his wife of 35 years, Karen Coombs. He is employed providing small business assistance with the local Economic Development Authority. He has three adult children who are all splendid human beings, 
and he is often politically active. He loves hiking, skiing, and doing landscape pastel paintings. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please rate and review us, and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. It means so much. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community. MontanaBookstore.com. CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. With fast and easy ordering, free hinge matching service, and same-day shipping, CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. Gecko Designs. Gecko Designs builds beautiful mobile-friendly websites for both large and small clients in Missoula and around the country. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Our next story comes to us from Denise Baker who risked her comfortable retirement by facing her daughter's drug addiction and assuming the responsibility for her daughter's children. She calls her story, Child of Mine. Last June, I went down to Atlanta to visit my daughter for a week or two because she was getting a divorce and had custody issues and I was gonna testify and take care of the kids and do the grandma thing. And I'd been there less than 24 hours when I realized there was something very, very wrong. All the classic signs of drug abuse were there, but I didn't want to believe it. The children were unattended. There was nothing but jello and instant oatmeal in the kitchen. They were used to having adults sleeping all the time. There was a strange man in the house that had a lot of friends that came and went. I was really confused, didn't know what to do. So I sort of panicked and then I went into my typical fix-it mode. I went to Costco, loaded up the house with food, cleaned everything, got kids' shoes, haircuts, enrolled in school, did everything I could think of doing, but it wasn't really helping the problem. I got an appointment with my daughter's psychiatrist and he met us on a Saturday and spent three and a half hours with us. And only in retrospect do I realize that I guess I'd staged an intervention and like most of those, it, it didn't go well. And my daughter left abruptly and then asked me to leave her house, which I did. And the doctor ended up reporting her to Child Protective Services. They spoke to me and asked me to hang around and I hung around for a couple of weeks but nothing happened. And I came home to Missoula. And then time just passed. I was trying to work. I couldn't really concentrate. I was a mess. Four weeks went by. Nothing happened. My chest hurt so bad all the time every day. 
I was afraid that I was going to have a heart attack or die of broken heart syndrome. I could just feel like my ventricle was out of shape and not pumping properly. And I tried to swim it away and supplement it away and meditate it away and hike it away and nothing worked. And I think nothing worked because it was, I was being told that it was a do or die moment. I had to do something or I was going to die. And the question was, what do I do? If I take action, you know, what's keeping my daughter alive? I'm, so I'm an ER nurse. I know about fentanyl and carbofentanyl and overdoses, and I've worked a lot of them, and I know what they look like, and I don't want my daughter to die accidentally, and I don't want her to lose hope because of something that I do. But I had to do something. So I uh, hired a private eye. I had to know. I just had to know. And she was circumspect, so I didn't know what she was doing, and I was just waiting more. And then finally I got a phone call from her, and she told me to call a lawyer. She said, it's time, and I did. And then about another week, I don't really know the timeline very well, but a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from the attorney and he told me there was an emergency custody hearing in 24 hours in Atlanta. So I got up from my desk, tried to go to Atlanta. There was a hurricane hitting the coast. I couldn't get any flights from Missoula. I rented a car, drove to Bozeman, flew to Atlanta, and you know, ultimately, I, I, mean, I flew into a hurricane and ultimately got to the lawyer's office you know, about 10 or 15 minutes before court. And that was when I saw the, the evidence. And it was ugly, it was really ugly. Syringes with blood and empty baggies with residue that I, I recognized well and no, no evidence of any nutritional food in the house. We went to court, we walked to the courthouse. Um, my lawyer put me at a ta you know, the big table like you see on TV. And I was just sitting there by myself and somebody put a pad and a pen in front of me and I was just waiting. I really didn't know what was gonna happen if my daughter was gonna show up. I had not talked to her at all since she asked me to leave her house. And it just felt like an eternity. Finally the door opened and my daughter came in and I looked back and saw her with the, the children and she looked beautiful as always and she was being gentle with the children as always. She's a gentle, beautiful soul. And then somebody escorted the kids out and judge asked her to take a drug test and my lawyer disappears and she disappears and I'm sitting at the table again for an eternity. And I have this pad and I'm thinking, I guess I'm supposed to be taking notes, something. And all I ever wrote on that pad was just all capital letters, fuck. <laughs> that, 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 was, that was it. Eventually they came back and uh, my lawyer had talked to my daughter and she didn't really want to have a hearing. She knew what was going to show up in the drug test so she signed the kids over. We signed papers and we had a civil talk and I walked out of the courtroom with a five and a four year old. And we flew back to uh, Missoula and it was like any flight to Missoula. We had several layovers and the kids had bilateral ear infections and we were a mess. We were a mess when we landed. We came from a hurricane. We felt like we'd been through a hurricane. And we tumbled into Missoula. And we were disoriented. We were sad. We were confused. But thank God, thank God there is this place where a river still runs through it. Because to me, that river 
more than ever now, it symbolizes the heart and soul of the people of Missoula because this town wrapped those kids up, lifted them up, made sure they had winter clothes, made sure they had beds, made sure they got to the right school, to the right doctors, everything. Everything, it's been that way since they arrived. So here I am, nine months later, one just finished kindergarten, one just finished Head Start and heading off to kindergarten. They're healthy, healthy, they're happy, they love everything about Missoula, like kids that have spent their lives indoors. They love that they can find their home by looking at mountains and seeing an M and an L, and there's a bridge that lights up at night, and they can walk up a mountain and be higher than everything. They love the snow, they love the hail, what is this stuff? They love everything about Missoula. But it's a lot. It's a lot. And sometimes when I get carried away or just overwhelmed by all of it, and I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm a single mom at 65. Uh, I'm in way over my head. I've got a, a boy that acts like a Vietnam vet, and if he hears a loud noise, he'll, be, he'll go from the table to the top of the stair rail in a second flat. And I've got a girl that'll cry mournfully in the middle of the night, and she sees we're running out of eggs in the fridge, she'll curl up on the couch, and I'll find her just mumbling, don't let me die, don't let me die. She's got a lot of food fear, and I, I don't even know what your freaking tooth fairy chart pays for anymore. We've got, we've got loose teeth. <laughs> when I get that way and I feel like I just can't do it, I am not enough to do this. I just remember the planetarium and I'm so grateful for that university planetarium because I just pretend I'm there and I see myself in all these problems and all these details and then I just try to zoom out like they do in the planetarium where I get farther and farther away and I can't see Missoula and then I can't see Earth and I just keep zooming out and it's farther and farther to where I can't even see our solar system and I just keep going so far to where I can see that my, my take on things is infinitesimal and it's, it's so far away I can't even see it. And when I'm at that distance, all I feel is that everything is bound by love. And then I think, why am I worrying about the details? Because everything is being held together by love. And it feels really strong when I can get myself to that space. And from that space, I can remember holding my daughter when she was a newborn and telling her all the things you tell a baby, that I will always love you and I will always take care of you. And then I remember going to her house to get the children's clothing before I left Atlanta and holding her in my arms and rubbing her little bruises that she had and just kind of seeing where she's injecting it. Telling her again, I will always love you. Thank you. Thanks, Denise. Denise Baker is not the storyteller's real name. 
She's asked us to use a pseudonym to protect her daughter's privacy, which is why we are also not reading her bio. The kiddos are happy, healthy, exuberant, and curious. Our final story comes to us from Nirma Dobrichanin. Nirma Dobrichanin, fresh off the plane from Rosaji, Montenegro, is disoriented by her surroundings in Missoula. Feeling lonely and hungry, she finds a friend who helps her adapt. Nirma calls her story Resident Evil Fairy Tale or Salvation in Missoula. Well, one of the biggest dilemmas I have ever had in my life was whether to come here or not. Because it was really hard for me to leave my two little girls for five weeks, and it's still hard. But eagerness to come to visit the USA and to learn more about its culture, people, customs, and everything was so strong. So I decided to come anyway, as you can see. <laughs> so after a 24-hour-long journey, flight, which wasn't very comfortable because the space was too small, I couldn't sleep at all. And at the same time, I'm so scared of flying. And it's just not the fear that I was going to die in the plane. I felt really responsible for my two little girls, as well as for my unborn child. So I was constantly scared, anxious, nervous. My palms were constantly sweating. I could hear my heartbeat, and it wasn't pleasant at all. So finally, we landed how happy I was to be in Missoula. But then again, Missoula? Wait, where the hell am I? <laughs> I have never heard about Missoula before. I found out that I was going to participate in this program. So I felt like I was lost. I was at least 10,000 miles away from my home and from my family, and I was alone. And then I saw my coordinator. I was so happy to see her. But she only helped me lodging and settle, and she went. I was alone in my room. And when I say alone, it means alone not just in the room, but also in the whole building where we were staying, because I came a day earlier before all other participants. So I was a bit scared. That awkward silence was killing me. I looked through the window, and there were no people around. Usually, you can see people in my country. That was something about the midnight. But here, there was nobody, not even a car to, to go past. I was thinking, where, what, what? Is this Resident Evil, or where am I? <laughs> so, <sighs> but it was really hard for me at that moment. Uh, I wanted to call my family to see if they're okay and to say that I'm, I was fine. And when I reached my phone, I saw that the battery was dead. Okay, I will recharge it, but then the plug was not the same as those in Europe. <laughs> so, dead phone, all alone, 10,000 miles away from home, without any people, nor in building or <laughs> around. So, at that moment, I felt desperate. I started crying. And I was also feeling hungry as I was pregnant. <laughs> so I was waiting for morning. And finally, morning came. I wanted to go to look around and to see if there is 
any place where I could find something to eat. But I was walking and walking and walking, and I didn't see anyone, because during uh, this time, campus is empty. There are no students, there is nobody. So I was wondering, God, please help, <laughs> do something. And then finally, in the distance, I saw a lady with hiking sticks. Thank you, God. I went there and I said, excuse me, do you know if there is any nice place to eat here, somewhere nearby? And then she told me, mm, if you come to my house, I will take car and I'll take you there. Well, at that moment after all those, after the stress I had, the only thing that crossed my mind was those American films I watched with serial killers. <laughs> and people having victims in their basements and a lot of different stuff. So I was like, <laughs> I don't know. But then I looked into her eyes, her transparent blue eyes. And somehow I felt that Marge was lonely as I was. And I felt some harmony and immediate connection with her. And I told myself, yes, she was sent by God. Go with her, go to her house. <laughs> and we went there. As soon as I entered the house, I saw many prayers on the table. It was kind of relief for me. And I felt like safe and a lot better than the previous night. And she took her car, and while, uh, when we started driving toward downtown, she kind of went to freeway, and I was wondering, oh, sorry, where, where are we going? <laughs> but it, I saw at some point that she's going downtown. She actually wanted to take me to her favorite place to eat. So we came there and she took me through the town. She showed me around. She took me to her favorite place. We were having lunch together, and I couldn't believe how kind she was, how she helped me to fulfill that uh, emptiness and that feeling of loneliness that was really strong. But not just her. People are so kind here in Missoula. As we were walking through, I couldn't believe that so many people want to speak to strangers. They want to show them around. They're eager to know about you. Uh, they're asking you questions. They offer you to help with anything. So that Resident Evil town from the last night, <laughs> actually, with the daylight, become, became something a lot more beautiful than I expected. And I was like, I'm not in that story anymore. I'm to a completely different story, like a fairy tale. So I would really like to thank you, Missoulian people, to thank Marge for everything. Thank you. Thanks, Nirma. Nirma Doberchanen is a mother of two little girls and a teacher at the secondary vocational school in her hometown 
of Rosage Montenegro. I had to look it up too. Montenegro means Black Mountain and is a sovereign state in southeastern Europe, the youngest state in what was once Yugoslavia. Nurma has been teaching English for 11 years. She loves to play volleyball and is passionate about traveling. One of her childhood dreams had been to visit the United States, which finally came true when she visited Missoula during the study of the United States Institute on Secondary Education as part of a project from the University of Montana. Thanks for listening this week. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations. The Trail 103.3, Jack FM 105.9, U104.5 FM, and ESPN 102.9. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com Enlightened Lab Float Center. Enlightened Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at enlightenlab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Missoula Federal Credit Union. Find them at missoulafcu.org. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Delaney Washerall, John Schneeberger, Denise Baker, and Nirma Dobrichanin. The next live Tell Us Something event is October 2nd at the Wilma. The theme is It's Complicated. We're taking story pitches right now. So, to pitch your story, please call 406-203-4683. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org.